0: Oh, okay.
1: oh. You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought.
0: From Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. For our series on American identities, last week we had the chance to hear from Dr. Todd Decker, who revealed the complicated history of one classic American song. This week, we continue focusing on music, but from a different angle. Dr. Patrick Burke, Associate Professor of Ethnomusicology here at Washington University in St. Louis, will explain how musicians in the 1960s resisted set categories or predetermined identities, whether those categories related to genre, race, or even to the title musician. Burke's upcoming book is about rock, race, and revolution in the 1960s. First, I wanted to ask him about a little-known band called The Gods. I was hoping to start talking a little bit about The Gods, which is a band that I had not ever heard Mm -hmm. of before, um, because you've written about this group. And you write about how, at least in the U.S. or in Western music, the the label or self-identification as musician Mm -hmm. often implies a certain level of skill or a certain level of innate talent, and the gods somehow challenged this view. How did they do that?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, this this article that I wrote about this group called The Gods, uh, and that's G-O-D-Z uh, as opposed to G-O-D-S for reasons I'm not quite clear on, but that's what they decided to go for. Um, these are musicians who, yeah, I'm not surprised that you haven't heard of them because I hadn't heard of them until fairly shortly before I started working on the article, and I've been immersed in this stuff for a while, but basically, they're a band that played really, really incompetently on purpose, uh, which struck me as a kind of fascinating, even within the context of the 1960s, where there's a lot of weird music going on, this was especially kind of strange and hard to figure out, so um, I got interested in them, and this wound up turning into kind of a bigger project about the whole idea of competence itself, and why why do we care about it so much Um, might there be another way of thinking about music that didn't involve obsessing over competence and skill and mastery and so on and part of what inspired me to do this i think has to do with my own kind of subfield i'm what's called an ethnomusicologist which has been defined in a bunch of different ways but it basically means that i am an anthropologist of music Um, and so Ethnomusicologists tend not to be as interested in the great masterworks or the great composers or greatness as such, but more in music as a kind of field of human behavior. So, how do people use music? Why do they perform music? Why do they like the music that they like? Why might they hate the music that they hate? And so on. And so, to some extent, this article is an attempt to really think about that idea. You know, what are we missing out on if we're not paying attention to all of the musicians who maybe aren't masters of their craft and for that matter what are we missing out on if we're not paying attention to musicians who aren't even any good
0: do you think this sort of approach was particularly important during the time in which they played there was talk in the article about
1: technocracy technocracy to not gonna i think
0: technocracy technocracy okay do you think that was a distinctly American phenomenon at that point that they were battling against, or what? what is your take on the timing? I think
1: the timing of The Gods is really significant, that you know, this is a group whose first album comes out in 1966, and you know, they're still making music today in one form or another, but basically their career runs from about 1966 to 1968. Um, so it's right at the height of both the era of kind of student and youth radical protest in the United States, but also it's the era of psychedelic rock music, um, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Jimi Hendrix, that sort of thing. So they're part of a context where there are a lot of really famous, more successful, more obviously proficient musicians who are doing experimental things as well. So there's this There's this kind of openness in both American and, you know, by the end of a decade, world culture to experimental pop music. But they're also, I think, making a kind of political statement in the sense that um, in the the article I I talk about this idea of the technocracy, which is something a lot of thinkers in the 60s were interested in, the idea that basically Western capitalist society had become so dominated by Experts of one kind or another, whether those were military um, planners or industrial magnates and or college professors for that matter, that there was this kind of dictatorship of expertise that was leading us to things like the Cold War and the threat of nuclear annihilation and so on. Um, and the gods are not were rarely explicitly political in that kind of sense, but I think you could easily make the case that. This sort of showcasing of incompetence is almost a kind of protest against the technocracy, against this idea that there are experts who are more important than you, and you should let them tell you what to do because they know best, and they're clearly not um, buying into that sort of idea.
0: So they were clearly choosing to not identify as musical experts in that sense, but it, it seemed that they also were choosing not to identify with various specific musical genres there's um, reference to folk and jazz and hardcore and a bunch of other mm-hmm. sort of yeah. musical styles going on at the time Why do you think that sort of I don't know if it was genre blending or just genre ignoring was mm-hmm. was important
1: I'm not sure if they were ignoring genres so much as they were kind of playing with the boundaries around them One reason why this approach might have made sense to them has to do with where they were located which was the Lower East side of Manhattan um, which was a place where, You had the Greenwich Village folk music scene. You had a downtown avant-garde jazz scene. You had, um, by the late 60s, some of the most important rock clubs in the United States. So you could kind of just walk around this neighborhood, and there was all sorts of, you know, you could probably literally hear folk music coming out of one door and jazz coming out of the one next to it. I mean, it, it, it was a place where genres themselves were getting kind of jumbled up. I guess it may be as a result of not having to be because their approach did not involve being competent at any of these genres. They could kind of play around with any of them. So some of it sounds sort of like avant-garde jazz, some of it sounds kind of like folk music, some of it is clearly rock, um, but often kind of pared down to their essentials. So when they play a song that sounds like a rock song, it has a kind of steady up-and-down beat and one chord, and they play the chord for three minutes, and the melody might have two notes in it. Um, or what might sound sort of like avant-garde jazz is really just all their friends invited into the studio to make as much noise as they wanted to for 10 minutes, and they recorded it and put it on the record. So it's um, it takes some of the principles of these genres and kind of distills them down to the point where almost anybody could do it, basically.
0: So the gods are one group in this 1960s era when there were so many different identities being played out, not just genre, but you know political identities. Mm-hmm. And also, I know you write a lot about race and... African-American music being appropriated by white groups and that, that sort of thing. And I definitely wanted to give you a chance to, to talk about that aspect of your work.
1: Yeah, well, I'm working on a book right now um, about... It's about the connection between 60s rock music and radical politics, and, and even more specifically, it's about how white rock musicians dealt with the challenges posed by the Black Power movement, um, which they did in a variety of ways, I think some of which we might find kind of insensitive now. My first article on the subject was about a kind of notorious performance where Grace Slick, who's the lead singer of A Jefferson Airplane, appeared on TV wearing blackface. Um, She was a white woman and, and made the Black Power salute at the end of performing a song which you know to look at it now is kind of shocking and disturbing she appears to have meant it as a fairly sincere display of solidarity with the black power movement obviously this particular method of doing this was one that was going was designed to be controversial and rubbed a lot of people the wrong way so so I'm interested in those kinds of interactions
0: so in in a one article you quote Amiri Baraka mm-hmm. who says that minstrels never convinced anybody they were black either mm-hmm. what what sort of reactions were going on at that time and then subsequent academic studies of this period, you know, you, you seem to think that there was at least some legitimacy to this sort of borrowing and appropriation of certain types of music, but how, how did people feel about it at the time?
1: Well, I, I mean, Amiri Baraka was the founder of what was called the Black Arts Movement um, and was somebody who wrote, well, he's, he's still around now right, writing interesting things, but was, was somebody who was very much invested in the idea that there was a kind of authentic African-American culture that, you know, he he acknowledged that white musicians could imitate, you know, they could play jazz, they could play rock and roll, they could play blues, but there was some kind of an attitude or some kind of, uh, there was something kind of metaphysical behind this music that you had to be African-American to fully understand. And so what he's responding to um, in this quotation about minstrelsy is actually the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And I think fairly justifiably he sees that these are groups who are playing I mean the Rolling Stones start off as a r and and blues tribute band I mean they're playing the music of people like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and these great Chicago blues musicians and within a couple of years are hugely rich and famous and influential and are on the cover of every magazine um, and from Baraka's point of view this is basically an act of theft you know that they've taken this music that African-Americans have cultivated and developed for generations and they've turned it into this kind of commercial product to make a quick buck. And most audiences, or most white audiences at least, associate it with these rock bands and not with the black musicians who really innovated this, in this style. Um, and I think he has a fair point. I mean, I think that certainly you can understand the frustration of somebody watching a tradition that they thought of as something, you know, that was very much their own being kind of dispersed around the world in a way that doesn't necessarily seem to give a whole lot back, at least economically, to the people who created it. Um, on the other hand, I mean, these kinds of borrowings have been going on forever and ever. Um, and so you could certainly make the case that the Beatles and the Rolling Stones are doing something more respectful and more interesting than a blackface minstrel in 1850, which is Baraka's point of comparison. I mean, He seems to suggest that they're roughly the same thing. I think you can kind of um, you can make a case that there's, there's some pretty big differences as well. So a group like the Jefferson Airplane is actually cobbling together a bunch of different African American influences in a fairly sophisticated way, You know whether it's gospel, folk, blues, um, 50s rock and roll. I mean, it's all kind of jumbled up. And one of the arguments that I make is that their musical borrowings were actually in some ways a lot more kind of sophisticated and interesting than their political statements. So while they thought what they were doing politically was you know l- looking at it now it might seem kind of naive to us but they actually are paying tribute to African American culture through the music um, perhaps in a more effective way than through kind of provocative things like wearing blackface on stage and and so on
0: um, in the same article you seem to challenge the idea that there are any sort of purely authentic forms of of music is that is that playing out in your current book
1: um, yeah I think so I mean I think it's kind of a um, You know, I think it's kind of a basic premise underlying not just a lot of my work. I mean, it's it's kind of a premise of ethnomusicology more broadly that you know, when ethnomusicology started, there was often this kind of preservationist impulse where people would take um, you know their little recording, you know, their cylinder recorders out into distant rural areas of Europe and the United States and record folk music of various kinds because it seemed like it was going to die out. I mean, a classic example is Native American music, where a lot of the earliest field recordings and studies, you know, going back as far as the 1890s, were of Native American music. And there's often this kind of implicit or explicit assumption that, you know, we're hearing the music that these people sang 500 years ago. And there's been a lot of criticism of that model ever since because it often seems to imply that when you call something authentic, you're often implying that it doesn't change over time. And that's often a charge that is leveled at non-white non-western people um, the idea being that well of course we know that European classical music changed from Beethoven to Brahms to uh, to John Adams but you know these people over here never change so authenticity as an idea is kind of bound up with these ideas that you know at their worst are just kind of racist and even when they're not taken to that extreme don't really deal with history in the way that in the way that we like to think about it now that you know things are always in a constant state of flux and change.
0: Many thanks to Patrick Burke for contributing to Hold That Thought. If you're a regular Hold That Thought listener, you may have noticed a somewhat different format today. Please feel free to get in touch with thoughts or feedback. You can find us online at thought.artsy.wustl.edu. We're also at Twitter and on Facebook at facebook.com wu. STL